Hey everybody, welcome to Sanity at the Movies. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. Happy New Year. It is 2020, and Sanity at the Movies is coming back. I am doing this episode alone because I am currently recording this on Christmas break, actually. I snuck out of the house, away from the old wife, the old ball and chain, the old battle axe, and came here to record a Sanity at the Movies podcast for you. I hope that she does not hit me with the rolling pin when I get back home. That's a joke. She won't do that. She's not an old battle axe, and she's not the wife from Hagar, the horrible, the hilarious Viking-themed comic strip of my youth. That being said, I am doing this episode alone, and this episode is maybe a little bit of a placeholder. Just going to be honest about that, because we haven't really figured out exactly what Sanity at the Movies is going to look like in 2020. It may be 2020, but I don't have 2020 vision on what Sound of Sanity is going to look like yet. And that is because me and Jake have both been on vacation. We have not been talking a lot about it, about it, and we both need a vacation. We both need to recharge, spend time with our families and all that kind of stuff, which has been good, but we haven't had a chance to figure out exactly what Sanity at the Movies is going to look like next year. Here's what I promise you. It's going to be good. It's going to be in-depth, you know? It's going to be like what we did with Star Wars. We're going to do some deep dives on some stuff. It's going to be franchisey. I think. We will do swaths of either a franchise, like your Marvel, or your Matrix, your Lord of the Rings, your Indiana Jones, or maybe an era or a filmmaker. You know, we could do Amblin Entertainment. We could do all the films of Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, whatever. It'll be themed swaths of content that will involve deep diving into individual films, and it'll be a lot of fun. I'll be here. Jake will be here. Ben Solzer, I hope, will be on some episodes. Brandon Chasteen from The Bookening, I hope, will be on some episodes, as makes sense. Both of those men have busy lives, but I'd like to get them in here to comment on some of the movies. I'd like to have them more and have a little bit less of just me and Jake, although, of course, I do love doing episodes with my good friend Jake. Now, I don't know exactly how it's going to work because, like I said, I just haven't talked to Jake about it yet. We haven't had a chance to sit down and figure out exactly what we want to do. We know we want to definitely put some material behind the paywall so that you'll pay for it and we will make money and we will be able to feed our families. We also want to keep providing consistent content in front of the paywall. So I'm hoping that you'll get a couple episodes a month in front of the paywall and then something really cool behind the paywall that you'll feel like paying. Some of the things we've discussed doing maybe behind the paywall would be more deep dives into more Star Wars. We are not done with Star Wars. Obviously, in front of the paywall, I think we're going to have to do Rise of Skywalker, a five-hour podcast, tearing apart every little nuance of that wonderful masterwork of cinema. Uh, But we also want to do The Mandalorian. We want to do The Clone Wars. We want to do Rebels. Jake really loves those cartoons, and I'd like an excuse to watch them. And I, the stuff I've seen, they look really cool. They look like they're worth talking about. It looks like it really is some of the best Star Wars, and certainly Jake's no slouch in the understanding reality department, and he says that they're pretty great. So I'd like uh, to do that. So I'd like to do that this year, one way or another. Anyway, it's all on the table, but just know you will be getting Sound of Sanity in the form that I've described, and there will be some really cool stuff behind the paywall. I think probably. What we'll do is we'll give you, the listener, maybe you, the patrons, an option to vote on what we do, and it'll be between some different franchises or some different series of films. And the other thing that I think might be kind of cool 
is to if 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 we are doing a franchise to look at some of the progenitors of the franchise like for example if we're going to do star wars if say we were going to do star wars again we would look at metropolis we would look at blade runner we would look at some of the things maybe the hidden fortress by kurosawa some of the things that influenced it so those are the kinds of things we've been talking about definitely want to make sure you get your fix of sanity at the movies i think we'll probably be more populist in the vein of star wars you know we're not going to do a deep dive on the films of oh what's that guy's name ingmar bergman you know probably not going to do a lot of criterion collection but who knows? I'd love to do some of that stuff. I think some of that stuff is important. I also think Star Wars and Marvel is kind of our bailiwick. But I want our scope to be a little bit more broad than that. I don't know. It's on the table. We're talking about it. You'll get good content and you'll get some great content behind the paywall that you will definitely want to pay lots of money for. Or alternately, a small, understandable, affordable amount for. Now, I do want to be sure to actually give you some content today. And so that is what I'm going to do starting now. You know how horrible hacks and frauds and clowns and idiots and bad websites are always doing top 10 lists, listicles to get your attention and and make you click and make you spend your time on their content, their ill-thought-out content? I thought I'd do something like that. So I'm going to give you my top five, one, two, three, four, five films from the 2020s. Now, a note about me in relation to movies in the last decade. The last decade was an interesting decade for me in relation to movies because it was an interesting decade for me in relation to everything. I would say in the last decade, entirely by God's tremendous grace, I went from being a narcissistic, art-obsessed, movie-obsessed, entertainment-obsessed jerk to the sterling citizen of the world that you listen to on all these fine podcasts. I also became a podcaster by profession, and I got married to a wife, a beautiful, wonderful, godly wife. Hi, sweetie. And I make 10,000 podcasts a day now, and I read lots of books for my podcast, The Bookening. I just have a lot of irons in the fire. And so for all those reasons, I just haven't watched as many movies in the last decade. I think from probably 2000 to 2010, I watched everything. Rom-coms, foreign films, art films, horror films, whatever. I wanted to see it all. I was voracious in my cinematic appetite. And I was also filling in all the gaps in my cinematic education. I was watching Hitchcock. I was watching your Stanley Kubrick, your Fellini, all that stuff, right? But somewhere, literally, I think around 2010, that began to change. I began to have less time because I began to take more responsibility in my church, in my family. Again, all by God's grace. I just fell out of love with art films. I just I did not see in this last decade as many foreign films and art films. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with foreign films or art films. That's not to say that indie films can't be good. But I just didn't see as many of them. I saw all the popular stuff because it was popular. And it turns out that when you have a lot of other things to do, you just don't, you get to the end of a long day and you don't feel like turning on the lobster, you know? You don't feel like, oh, a black and white reflection on the Holocaust. That's what I need. My wife is hilarious. She can actually, I I think she skims the surface of movies in a certain sense. She doesn't get deeply invested in a movie. So she literally probably could watch 20 minutes of Schindler's List or something like that. 
and not really be affected by it and then go to bed. But I'm not that way. If I give myself to something, I kind of have to give my heart to it. Or I do, whether I should or not. And so I've been a lot more cautious about investing my time, investing my heart, because I just have less of myself to go around. And so at the end of a long day, I'm not so much in the mood for Moonlight or Swiss Army Man or a lot of those things. And also, I'm just less impressed with that stuff. And again, it's not that things that aren't about superheroes blowing stuff up and finding glowy things in the middle of the city, the city can't be good, but I just have less patience for it. And I have more of a desire to just be entertained and to turn off my brain at the end of a long day, which I think is mostly a really healthy thing, actually. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the fact that I was thinking through all my favorite films of the 2010s, which I've narrowed down to five for you. And, you know, there's just not a lot of indie or art or foreign stuff on there. It's mostly American-made. It's mostly studio-backed. A lot of it is, in some sense, populist. And I feel a little bit ashamed of that, actually. If I'm going to put myself on a movie podcast, shouldn't I have a broader spectrum of understanding of all these things? Well, yeah. And I think uh, my spectrum isn't narrow. I've, 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 I've seen a lot of movies. And I've thought a lot about movies, and I know a lot about movies, and I'm educated in cinema. But I just, in the last decade, I've become a lot less enamored with art for art's sake. I'm much more interested in art for the sake of edifying me, or entertaining me, or giving me some insight into human nature, even. All of which many indie, foreign, weird, esoteric movies do. Again, I'm not against that stuff, but it just hasn't been my bailiwick. And if you're listening to this podcast, probably you're here because you like deep dives of Star Wars movies. And so you're not looking down on me. And actually, I don't look down on me. I think the five movies that I'm about to talk about are good and worth seeing. And in any case, let's not waste any more time. Let's talk about them. So my first, this is in no particular order, my first film that I really loved of the 2010s, La La Land. Ladies and gentlemen, I just fell for it. That first number where they're all dancing around the highway and all the people are in the pretty clothes and the bicyclists are doing tricks and it's all seemingly one unbroken shot. Then the camera pans up and there's this old timey La La Land title card that comes up. The movie just hooked me. It had me. I love old musicals. I love Astaire and Rogers. I love Oscar and Hammerstein. Did I just say Oscar and Hammerstein? I meant Rogers and Hammerstein. Also Rogers and Hart, Lerner and Lau, Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I love all of it. I think actually a lot of that comes from growing up with Disney movies. Because the Disney Renaissance, which is what I was alive for, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King, all that stuff, those are very much Broadway shows. And Alan Minken, who wrote the music for a lot of that stuff, uh, uh, Minken and Ashman, they come from Broadway, right? And, And so I just, I love that stuff. You know, a lot of people have a problem with musicals because they're literal-minded. And don't hear this as an insult. This is just descriptive, not prescriptive here. But I I think a lot of people don't like musicals because the characters are bursting into song. And nobody literally bursts into song. And so their brains and their hearts just can't follow along when suddenly someone starts singing. I myself am not a literalist. When someone starts singing in a musical, I don't assume that the character in that reality, is actually singing. 
I just assume that we're seeing an abstract representation of their deepest longings, of their deepest fears, of the way they feel. And music, of course, is the language of pure feeling. And the combination of image and music carefully curated and matched, married together, that is what cinema does best. It's something that I think is so sad that so many movies these days have forgotten. They'll use these temp tracks or they'll get Hans Zimmer to do another Hans Zimmer score. And it's like, no, the great thing about cinema is that you can craft, you can spend all this time crafting this succession of images that tells a story, and then you can weld it together, carefully selected images with carefully selected sounds, and you can put it together perfectly. You can finagle it until it matches seamlessly, until the emotion is just where you want it, until the music is hitting right with the image in a way that is calculated for maximum emotional effect. And that's arguably the most powerful artistic tool imaginable. Putting those two things together in in a way that opera is live and it's removed, stage musicals, depending on whether the performer slept well or slept poorly, depending on whether the people hit their beats. These, These media can all be powerful, right? But movies are uniquely suited to just clamp in an ironclad way music, sound, and the emotion of that together with images and with the empathy that we bring to seeing fellow human beings captured in images. And you put those two things together, and it's so powerful. And filmmakers just take that for granted, and they're very unintentional in the way that they do that. You still, in, in, a, in a Star Wars movie, you can still get John Williams to write a score that does this work in a very strong, very bombastic, intentional way. And sometimes, every five years or so, somebody will come out with another musical. But so many movies just use source music or temp tracks or orchestration that was written to match a temp track that someone fell in love with. And there's nothing particularly inspired about it. And that's just, it's a shame. It's a shame. And, And so when something like La La Land comes along, has a genuinely good score, a genuinely good story, puts it together in the best old Hollywood way, and then has something to say. La La Land actually is a reflection, a commentary. It's in conversation with the old musicals, with classic romantic showbiz stories. And it does that very well. And it manages to wring a lot of emotion out of it with that gut punch at the end of what happens. Yes, I wish Ryan Gosling was a stronger singer. I wish he was a stronger dancer. I wish Emma Stone was a stronger singer. But they've got chemistry and they're good actors. In the old days, you'd get somebody who could do a little bit of everything, but would be really good at the thing, right? So you get Fred Astaire. He can sing pretty well. I mean, he introduced a lot of standards into the canon. He's, he's not a bad singer, but he's not a great singer. He's also an okay actor, pretty good actor. But what he really is, is a fantastic dancer. And so you get him, he does the dances, and he muddles his way through the other stuff. These days, they often go the opposite approach. They'll get somebody like Ryan Gosling, and they rely on the fact that he's a good actor. And so he can learn to act the part of a singer, to act the part of a dancer, to act the part of a pianist. And he can pick up what he needs from these skills, and we can use cinematic tricks to get around the rest of it. But what you're really doing is getting someone who can act and someone who has some marquee value. Same thing with Emma Stone. I think that's too bad. I prefer the jack-of-all-trades. And there is a scene, the early romantic banter number between the two of them where obviously in the script 
he's supposed to bust out some great dance moves. And the fact that Ryan Gosling can't do it is so pathetic and lame and, and it makes the movie less than what it could be. But I loved what the movie was doing. I loved the soundtrack. I loved the clean, careful, professional, intentional filmmaking on display. And I loved where the story went. I loved that it was able to be wistful and romantic, but also realistic. I, th- I thought it had something to say. And it was something that was powerful for me. I, I did not have to abandon my true love in order to follow my passion. But I was thinking a lot about those kinds of things when the movie came out. As we got Warhorn Media up and running, as I thought about my ambitions in life professionally and my ambition to be married, which I was a single guy at the time. And the movie captured all that. And it did it with Hollywood glamour and a great soundtrack in the musical form, which I just think is great. I wish there were five movies like La La Land every year. I wish La La Land was not something that was exceptional, but rather something that was kind of pedestrian and boring because they were making a lot of them and a lot of them were a lot better than La La Land. That's, that's actually the world that we should be living in. But instead, we live in a world where you only get a La La Land once every five, 10 years, and you just have to hope that it's good. In this case, I thought this one was very good. Number two, let's talk about Mad Max Fury Road. Now, this is a Christian podcast, and I don't want to recommend anything that's too violent or too gross for people out there. I think this one, to my mind, falls on the tasteful side of action filmmaking, even though it's pretty intense. I would say something like some of the later John Wick movies just go too far in making us, uh, in feeding our bloodlust. But Mad Max isn't really about bloodlust. It's about kineticism. It's about action choreography. It's about cause and effect, anticipation, setup and payoff. It is a slap in the face to the whole, let's just shoot a bunch of footage and chop it together as quickly as possible so that it'll feel kinetic and have some good sound design, Bourne movie school of action filmmaking, which I hate. I actually like the Bourne movies, and I think that they are the best exemplars of that style, but I hate everything that came after, your Jason Statham movies, your Christopher Nolan Batman movies, where hand-to-hand combat is just this blurry mess where you can't tell what's going on, there's no real design, there's no setup, there's no payoff, we're not with the characters seeing, oh, this is the challenge. He's got to get down the hallway. He's got these things as weapons. What's what's he going to do? Oh, I think he's going to do that. Oh, he surprised me. He did that. Setup, payoff, crisp, clean photography so that we can see what's happening. Who's doing what to whom? Who's trying to do something? Who's failing? These were all staples of action cinema for years and years and years. And then somewhere in the junky 2000s, we just lost it. And even to this day, when you go and see an action movie, there's no guarantee that you're going to get good action. And that's just so sad. You You should be able to reasonably, when you buy a ticket to an action movie, expect, even if it's a bad story or bad characters or maybe questionable this or that, you'll get some good action. But you, you actually can't be guaranteed of that in this sad day and age that we live in. Mad Max, though. Not like that. I think it's been part of the renaissance of quality action filmmaking. And it is a high watermark. I also, again, this is just a personal thing. I have a lot of nostalgia for Mad Max. For whatever reason, my dad really loved those old Mad Max movies. And I know they can get a little rough. And I do not necessarily recommend that you try this at home. But we watched them when I was a kid. And my dad would laugh and get such a kick out of it. And so I feel a lot of warm fuzziness about Mad Max. You know, the way that people felt when they went and saw Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and it just 
brought back their Star Wars experience to them. That's how I felt when I saw Mad Max. I also, I think I'm pretty well on the record as hating feminist propaganda. But I will say, when it comes to feminist propaganda, I think this is the top of the heap. It's the best. It's built into the world in a way that makes sense, that doesn't feel preachy, that really makes you root for those ladies to get out from under the oppressiveness of what's his face, a Morton Joe. And Charlize Theron is just a great actress, actress, and she does a good job. There is that one moment where Max can't make the gun fire to shoot the guys, and she takes the gun. I, to me, that feels a little on the nose, like, this is a movie where women are strong, not just men. But still, I wish every movie didn't have to have a dumb feminist message rammed down our throat. In fact, I wish most of them didn't. But this story, in and of itself... I really like and the music is awesome and the action is awesome and the world building is just the best. George Miller, classy filmmaker. And this is a great movie. There's no two ways about it. Number three, Lincoln. Steven Spielberg's Lincoln is an unheralded classic. That's my two cents, folks. And those two cents literally have Lincoln's face on them if I was to give you two cents. So I guess it's a pretty important subject. Look, I, I think a lot of my favorite movies are things that are well written. And Lincoln is dense and it's full of words and those words are colorful and literate and eloquent and well expressed in a way that you just don't get in movies these days. You barely get it in stage plays, you get it some on TV. But I love something that's just written that just goes for it where people give speeches and make arguments and they talk better than you or I talk in real life. I'm not a big fan of realism in dialogue. I want my dialogue to be, it has to feel realistic, but I want it to be colorful. I want it to be witty. I want it to be eloquent. I want it to be grand. And Lincoln is full of those things. Tommy Lee Jones has these great put-downs that he gives to the other characters. Daniel Day-Lewis has these great speeches as Lincoln telling them he, he wants his coffee. Now, now, now! <laughs> it's just good writing. And it's an unheralded classic because I, I think people liked it, but they just thought, this is Spielberg. He's doing Lincoln. It's a good movie. We like it. Now we've forgotten it. I think Spielberg, he is an effortless craftsman and he does it without effort. And he casts a murderer's row of great actors to play even the smallest parts. And, yet, and Daniel Day-Lewis, I don't know. This might be controversial, but I think that that guy can act. I, I think he's, he's, he's a decent actor, Daniel Day-Lewis. And I don't know when I've had, in recent years, such a transporting experience with a character in a movie. And by transporting, I mean, I felt like I just knew the character and I wasn't thinking about, oh, it's Daniel Day-Lewis doing his little tricks here or there. And maybe some other people were thinking about that. But to me, I actually had the experience of not being super impressed by Daniel Day-Lewis's acting because I wasn't aware of Daniel Day-Lewis's acting. I was just in the presence of Abraham Lincoln. And that's a neat trick. And that doesn't happen very often, especially as an adult, savvy, aware film goer. I'm always thinking of things on two levels, right? I'm always thinking, well, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the character, is an interesting character doing such and such. And I'm thinking about, this is Ewan McGregor. This is his approach to playing Obi-Wan, and this is how he's in conversation with Alec Guinness's approach to playing Obi-Wan, and blah, 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 blah. And Daniel Day-Lewis is actually a really easy person to have that kind of 
a conversation with yourself while you're watching one of his movies because you read articles about how he prepared for the role and oh, he's playing Bill the Butcher, so he's doing this with his knife and he's doing this with his eye and here's everything that he did behind the scenes to make everybody call him Bill and he got in a knife fight with the guy because method acting is the coolest and na 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 na. There are movies that have Daniel Day-Lewis in them and there's certainly many, many movies with many, many other actors. Let's say Johnny Depp, for example, where you're constantly processing not just the character as a character, but you're processing the actor's approach to the character. And sometimes I'm not necessarily opposed to that. You can very much appreciate, you know, the best Johnny Depp performance. You're just enjoying the things that Johnny Depp is getting away with in his approach to the character. But you're never not thinking about the fact that it's Johnny Depp. People will say an actor like Johnny Depp manages to slip into a role. I don't think Johnny Depp ever slips into a role because I'm always thinking, oh, it's Johnny Depp pretending to be a pirate and acting like gay Keith Richards. Or, oh, Johnny Depp has this hat. Johnny Depp's easy to beat up on. I think there are good actors, and I think there are good Johnny Depp performances that do that sort of thing. My favorite actors are oftentimes the ones that have very limited range, but they just embody those characters, like your Clint Eastwood, for example. Clint Eastwood can only really play one thing. Or John Wayne. John Wayne did not have any range. You could argue John Wayne wasn't a good actor, but what John Wayne did was he played a great John Wayne, and you always believed that John Wayne was, in fact, John Wayne on the screen, just the same way that you believe that Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood, just the same way that with Daniel Day-Lewis, in, I'd say, two of his performances at least, I'm thinking Lincoln and I'm thinking Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, I'm not aware of an actor. I'm not aware of a bag of tricks. I'm not aware of Daniel Day-Lewis doing histrionics or being Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm just aware of the character. And that's how I felt about Lincoln. Another thing I like about the movie, I like the pragmatic approach to politics. I think the movie does a good job of showing that Lincoln was a pragmatist, that he was Machiavellian in some ways, that he had a lot of other interests at heart, and that he did what he needed to. He wasn't this golden perfect hero of American history. If you're going to get something like that done, you're going to have to make compromises. I think that's smart, and I think that's interesting, and I think that makes this a really interesting movie and a really interesting story. And yeah, it has go. The movie should have ended 20 minutes before it did. But that's okay. Spielberg is a self-indulgent filmmaker, and it's what makes him great, that he indulges in the things that he loves. And so it feels a little churlish to me to beat up too much on him when he goes too far. Yeah, the movie would be better if Spielberg was a little less self-indulgent, just like a lot of Spielberg movies would. But if Spielberg was a little bit less self-indulgent, we wouldn't have Steven Spielberg, and that'd be a shame. Number four, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. specifically. The short story within that group of short stories called The Gal Who Got Rattled. Buster Scruggs, also pretty violent. Watch with caution. But the Coen brothers are just masterful filmmakers. They are my favorite living filmmakers. I love the Coen brothers. I wish that they weren't as profane and as violent as they can be. But they're so smart and they're so good. Such good writers. (laughs) They've got such a sharp sense of humor. And they can really tug the old heartstrings. And I don't know that I want to say much more about this, actually. If you haven't seen it, it's devastating. I don't know when I felt the unfairness of a storyteller more. You ever have that feeling where you're watching a tragedy unfold? You know, maybe you're watching Romeo and Juliet, and you just think, I really like this Romeo, and I like this Juliet more than I expected. I know that something bad's going to happen, but I really, I would prefer that they get together. And then you're mad. 
you're actually mad at William Shakespeare because Romeo and Juliet are going to die and you feel played with and you actually wish that it would go a different way. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie of any kind where you're actually torn at the end because the tragedy was so effective that you actually don't like it. Well, that's this story. It's so sweet the way it's going. And then what happens is so unfair that you're just like, come on, Cohen brothers. Were you playing with me? Do you have to be that mean? And it's a question I keep asking myself. That's the great unanswered question about the Cohen brothers is, do they have compassion or are they just cynics that like to laugh at humanity and laugh at their audience? I think that they do have compassion, actually, in most of their films. But I think you have to get through a lot of sardonic layers to get there. But that's the kind of thing that I really like in a movie or a story or a short story or a novel. I like when the author is stone-faced, when they are not giving away exactly what they're doing, when they're making you think about it, when they're making you approach the material instead of making the material approach you. Now, I also like the other approach. I just said I love Steven Spielberg because he's self-indulgent and because he draws you in. But filmmakers like the Coen brothers, they just stand there. They just present their story to you. They're very blank-faced about it. Maybe they have a little bit of a smirk, but they want you to think about it a little bit. And they want you to approach the material. They want you to have to decide whether it's supposed to be funny or whether it's supposed to be sad, how bleak and how hopeful it is. And I find that interesting, even though it can be angering. And I wish that they didn't have to be so violent. But and this movie has some violent set pieces. But the story in particular that I'm thinking of, the movie, if you don't know, it's broken into these little vignettes. And there's a vignette called The Gal Who Got Rattled. And it's just a beautiful piece of storytelling. And it's so sad. So sad. And it might make you really angry, actually. But hey, that's something, right? That's that's catharsis. That's That's what stories exist to do. Number five, and this is my favorite film of the last 10 years. I said I wasn't going in any particular order, and I wasn't. But I think this movie, for me, is the top. The Social Network by David Fincher. I love this movie. I love the melding of Fincher's sensibilities with Aaron Sorkin's sensibilities. I think Aaron Sorkin is a good example of someone who can be pretty self-indulgent, who can go easy on his characters. You watch The West Wing, and a lot of times, if President Bartlett does it, it must be the right thing to do because President Bartlett does it, and he's our hero, and the bad guys are the bad guys. And Aaron Sorkin's not allowing us as an audience to question the value judgments of all these characters. Or if we do question them, the answers are very easy. If anyone does anything questionable, then that questionable thing becomes a very answerable thing. And people are kind of let off the hook. The consequences of their actions don't quite come back to bite them the way that they actually would in real life because you feel like Aaron Sorkin just really likes his characters and he's in love with the dialogue that he writes. And so it's not always good. It's not always healthy to live in an Aaron Sorkin universe where you as the audience entering in and these characters as your surrogates are always being patted on the back and told that everything they do is basically right. But you combine that with the cold, icy reserve and the ironic detachment of a David Fincher. He brings some discipline to that. And suddenly you have the best movie of the decade because you have everything that's brilliant about Aaron Sorkin, just his dialogue, his playwright's sense of setting a scene and getting a conflict going, 
all these things that Sorkin does really well, these tricks of the trade that I've been talking about with Lincoln and La La Land, you know, just the craftsmanship of it. Nobody's better than Sorkin at that kind of thing. But then you have somebody that's disciplining it. You also have a subject that's bringing some discipline to it because Mark Zuckerberg is not a likable guy. And the story of Facebook is not the story of an unmitigated triumph. There's a lot of questions about the place of Facebook in this world and about social media and about tech geniuses and Silicon Valley and all this stuff. And Sorkin just can't allow us to bask in the glory of our nerd hero like he likes to do, uh, like was particularly repugnant in the way he did it in the newsroom and some of the later stuff that he's done, but is even there in the best of the West Wing. And so you have this dense, literate, witty script, dialogue lines on top of dialogue lines, uh, dialogue that circles back examines itself, surprises, gut punches, reversals, all this stuff done with the greatest verbal dexterity, performed by Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield, who are both absolutely phenomenal. I have seen Jesse Eisenberg, by the way. He sometimes comes to Bloomington, Indiana. I think his girlfriend goes to IU. And I was in the library one time, about to write a script for the Ville, if I'm not mistaken. And I went into the Indiana room, and who should be sitting there but Jesse Eisenberg. And as I got in, he got up, he walked past me, we locked eyes, and he gave me a little nod. I have gotten a little nod from Jesse Eisenberg. And I think what the little nod was, was, thank you for not approaching me and pointing me out to everybody. Thank you for being chill. I was most glad to be chill. I like Jesse Eisenberg. I think he can be annoying. I think he can be misused in certain things. But the nice thing about Jesse Eisenberg, as, as opposed to some of the other actors that play those kinds of nebbish, nerdy parts. Jesse Eisenberg does not care whether you like him or not. He ne- he never feels like he is asking for you to like him the way that a say Seth Rogen or even a Michael Sarah might when when they do their kind of stammering nerd act be asking for your sympathy. Jesse Eisenberg doesn't feel like he cares whether you like him. And that's great for Mark Zuckerberg. And that's great for any kind of autistic Sorkinesque nerd super genius type. And it, again, supplies some of what is missing in a lot of Sorkin's other work and plays to Sorkin's strengths and downplays his weaknesses in that a lot of the time Sorkin seems like he really likes his characters and he wants you to like them too. Let's cast Rob Lowe as the Sorkin surrogate in the West Wing and let's have Rob Lowe be oh so darn handsome and cute and oh so good with the ladies and oh so wish fulfillmenty. Well... Jesse Eisenberg, he's got some moments where you know Sorkin was writing the kind of dialogue that Sorkin wishes Sorkin could say, but Jesse Eisenberg delivers it with a snarl in an unlikable way, in a way that's annoying, in a way that you won't, you wouldn't like if you were there to interacting with the character and you don't like seeing on the screen, and gives it a sting, gives it a brutality, gives it a nastiness that is just great. And nobody does Wounded Puppy Dog better than Andrew Garfield. He's fantastic. And I love stories about nasty people screwing each other over. I think everybody does, actually. It's what makes the Shakespeare history plays so fascinating. For example, Richard III, Henry the whatever. It's fun watching smart people try and outmaneuver each other and do awful things to each other. It is really fun watching smart people go after each other. Maybe it's because we all have enemies and we all have politics that we all we have to deal with. And we all dream of being able to cut through it, being able to circumnavigate it, being able to 
figure out a way to triumph definitively. And so even watching a bad person doing it, we can't help but be drawn into the drama and be rooting for somebody like Zuckerberg, as portrayed in this movie, to get it over on the Winklevoss twins on Eduardo Saverin. I think it's a timely movie. I think it has something to say about the internet age, about tech billionaires, about social media, about the dominance of youth and youth culture in today's society. I think it's not annoying or preachy about those things, but genuinely interesting and wise in a way that, again, most of Aaron Sorkin's work isn't. And who doesn't love a good tragedy of somebody who gained the whole world and lost his soul? There's a reason we keep coming back to that story. We're all afraid of it, and we're all fascinated by it. And we want to know the paths to avoid. We want to know the steps to avoid. We want to know what the devil looks like and who he is when he comes to us in the form of Justin Timberlake. Bum, bum, bum. I love the score, the Electronica score by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. I just love everything about this movie. I think it's so much fun. I think several of the verbal smackdowns are exhilarating in the way that the best action scenes are exhilarating in an action movie, a great action movie. I just think this is a great movie. And there you go. That is my top five movies of the 2010s, I guess. Maybe I'll think of something that I should have obviously included on this list as I'm going to bed tonight. I don't know. I really think my top five movies of the 2010s were getting married and getting a job that I really liked and serving in the church. And I obviously think that those should be your top 10 movies of the 2010s. Movies actually aren't all that important and they shouldn't be all that important. And I'm doing a movie podcast and it's dumb for me to do a movie podcast and then slap you on the wrist for liking movies. I don't want to do that. I really like movies. I think it's okay if you really like movies. I think movies are really likable, at least the good ones. But I don't know. It's an interesting relationship that I have with movies and that you have with movies, that we all have with movies. And I'm looking forward to exploring it more on this podcast in the upcoming months and years. We'll be back in a couple weeks, folks, me and Jake, to talk more about what we're going to do this year and start doing it. Meantime, keep an eye on us on social media at Warhorn Media, on Twitter at Sound of Sanity, on Instagram, patreon.com forward slash Sound of Sanity. You can support us and there will be some really cool paywall content one way or another this year. Till next time, folks, uh, stay sane.